Swimsuit? Check. Sunscreen? Check. Phone charger? Check. Don't forget to pack the 5-Hour Energy. It fits great in a pocket or carry-on, and the alert feeling will help you arrive ready for anything. Now get 20% off when you use code 5HETRAVEL at 5HourEnergy.com. Expires April 30th. One-time use only. Not valid with other discounts. Remember, visit 5HourEnergy.com and use code 5HETRAVEL to save 20%. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello and welcome back to ACRAC. I'm Jed Wolpaw. And I'm thrilled to have with me today the one and only Dr. Lee Goodell. Frequent listeners to the show will remember that Dr. Goodell was here a while back and we talked about POCUS, point-of-care ultrasound. And we said then, and we're following through on our promise, that we would come back today, another day, and do an episode on critical care ultrasound. And so that's what we're here for. Uh, You'll remember that Dr. Goodell is an assistant professor of both anesthesia and cardiac anesthesia here at Johns Hopkins. And he also runs the Critical Care Fellowship Program here. He's a good friend and colleague, and I'm thrilled to have him on the show. Lee, welcome back to the show. Jed, thank you so much for having me, and hello to everyone. Very excited to return for our second installment of Ultrasound on ACRAC. So uh, today, really, the goals and objectives want to talk about critical care ultrasound and critical care echocardiography. And uh, as Jed mentioned, our last and first discussion on this topic really focused on point-of-care echo. And so I just first want to dive back into that subject just briefly, and we, we described the objectives in that last podcast talking about the goals and objectives of POCUS and that it's really critical to know what your training level is and how to use POCUS. And that's a, an important place to start for critical care ultrasound because it's really that next step up in complexity. Yeah, great, Lee. So, so let's definitely start there. What, what are the differences? I think you know a lot of people, especially who don't have a lot of familiarity with this or who trained in a prior time, uh, may just kind of think ultrasound or no ultrasound, but not that there are multiple kind of types or steps or uh, levels of training. So, you know, if you had to summarize, what is the difference between uh, a basic POCUS ultrasound exam and the critical care ultrasound exam? So it's a little bit similar to how TEE is broken down into basic TEE and comprehensive perioperative TEE, but we haven't yet reached the era where we've clearly defined those different entities. So this is a really developing field, uh, and I'm going to take a crack at it for you. So as we talked about in POCUS the last we spoke, POCUS really is at the point of care where you are trying to answer a really brief question that's within your trained skill set. Critical care ultrasound is similar in that. However, it takes the level of detail and the quantification to a higher level. 
So for critical care ultrasound, how that might differ. So for POCUS, um, we evaluate left and right ventricular function and, and qualitatively say this looks generally okay or this looks generally bad. For critical care ultrasound, we now have the tools at the bedside to quantify ventricular function. So I want to know what your left ventricular ejection fraction is, and I want to know it by Simpson's method. I want to know what the right ventricular function is, what the dimensions look like, and what TAPSI measures to be. These are solid, quantifiable measurements done uh, by convention, and they are then articulated to your other colleagues to really make higher level clinical decisions on. Great. And so uh, obviously, therefore, since you're doing much more specific, instead of just saying, how's that LV look in general, you're actually measuring things, like you said, um, that's going to require a greater degree of training and uh, a higher level of skill achievement. Exactly. And it's a really exciting time from this perspective, too. A lot of my cardiac anesthesia colleagues equate our current time with critical care ultrasound to a couple decades back even with how TE developed in cardiac anesthesia practice. And what do I mean by that? Well, um, it's really exciting that the first National Board of ECHO exam uh, for certification in critical care echocardiography was delivered in January 2019. This is the – it's a historical achievement because it's something that's been in development between multiple specialties over a series of years. So as you can imagine, there are multiple different critical care specialists, surgical critical care physicians, anesthesiologists, medicine, emergency medicine, pediatric ICU folks – neurology, neurocritical care as well. So all of these bodies came together, and it's now a recognition of how important ultrasound is in the critical care unit. And now we have a certifying test off of that. Uh, And as I said, recently for the first time administered in January 2019. What is even more exciting is that now there's also certification requirements following that test. And so here on the here on the podcast too, we um, we posted the PDF for what the application for certification in critical care echo looks like. Yeah, that's awesome. So um, let's talk a little about the critical care exam. So how long? Again, obviously it depends on how how expert you are. But let's say for someone like you who's who's done a fair amount of these now, how long does it take you to do a critical care ultrasound exam on a typical ICU patient? So. We teach it here at Hopkins that you approach it in a similar way as a POCUS exam. You should develop your clinical differential diagnosis and go straight to the bedside and and, and first image with that clinical question in mind. Um, and in the ICU, time uh, time is of the essence, so not to necessarily – go through every aspect of our imaging protocol before you make a decision that's going to potentially impact someone's clinical outcome. So first, we sort of we, – we encourage our fellows to, to do that first exam. And then once, uh, once that information is garnered, then go through the rest of the protocol. So in general, that first one-off should take two to three minutes as you're, de- as you're uh, managing a complicated, decompensating patient. But then you fill in the rest of the background once you've reached uh, that clinical decision point with the rest of our protocol, and it usually takes about 15 to 20 minutes. Okay, so 10 to 15 minutes 
very doable. Um, obviously, a lot is happening in that 10 to 15 minutes. So when we think about how to gain the skills, and, and not just skills, but the the certification and, and be allowed to do this kind of an exam, and maybe even you know bill for it in the future, who knows how that's going to go. But when we think about that, uh, you mentioned there's an exam. What's the process? How does somebody out there who thinks, I want to be able to do critical care ultrasound, um, they, I assume, can't just, uh, you know, take the exam tomorrow. So what's the process? Do they have to get ready for the exam after the exam? What else do they have to do to actually become certified? What's the process there? So the, um, the process is very well articulated in this document that we're going to share with everyone. Um, but, uh, it's, it's also quite simple. So the, um, the first requirement is to proceed through an ACG me certified critical care fellowship, uh, and that doesn't have to be anesthesiology, or it could be anesthesiology as the one that I lead here at Hopkins. Uh, and it has to be a one-year, at least one-year ACGME uh, fellowship in critical care. Then the other aspects of that are, are practice requirements. Um, so you have to, over the course of that fellowship year, do 150 supervised exams under the guidance or supervision of someone who is currently – certified in critical care echocardiography, advanced PTE, or um, the, uh, the transthoracic equivalent from cardiology. Um, those, are, those are the first requirements, then um, pass the examination, and uh, then apply demonstrating all of these things with a logbook of the exams that have been done um, to be, uh, to be a, essentially what's called a diplomat, not just a testimer. Okay. So you have to have 150 exams over the course of your fellowship, supervised exams. You have to take the um, actual test and pass it, presumably, and then you have to submit a log of those exams. Exactly. And so I think this is such an exciting thing for our specialty. Um, we have, as anesthesiologists, access to ultrasound in so much more of our practice, and this is really a new uh, groundbreaking field for our our, our entire uh, specialty, and I can imagine truly in the future, um, critical care trained echo uh, ultras ultrasound anesthesiologist really giving even more of what we already do to uh, groups around the country in very similar ways to the cardiac anesthesiologist, but in really unique ways at the point of care uh, and. Um, also, as you briefly alluded to, that this is recognized as such a priority that we anticipate it likely will lead to some sort of reimbursement for these ex exams at some point. Yeah, that's great. So when we think about this exam itself, and um, I know you've taken it and passed it, and congratulations, um, but we uh, – and I'm, I know you can't um, reveal kind of uh, any specifics about questions that were on it, but just in general, is it a mix of – questions about kind of the physics behind the ultrasound and then maybe they give you some images and you have to interpret them and you know is that you're basically is it up like a kind of it's a multiple choice but with some practical stuff on it so it this was one of the most exciting tests i've ever taken if you can call it that but also very challenging um it's multiple choices you mentioned clinically relevant so they usually give clinical vignettes and then an image for you to interpret and in many cases decide upon what the what the choice should be for clinical management of the patient we've also included 
with the other documents on this podcast, the exam content outline for everyone to see so that you get a sense of how, uh, how detailed the training is uh, for, for this skill set. Great. And so do you think in general that a critical care fellowship will – I know we're working on this here, but do you, do you see in the future five years from now – that um, most critical care fellowships will include um, training in in this so that fellows at the end of the year can take this exam? Or do you think it will require additional, like a an, an additional ultrasound uh, fellowship, another six months or 12 months of, of really focus on ultrasound to be able to get those 150 exams and be ready for this exam? I, I think it's going to be really interesting to see how all the fellowships uh, continue to adapt uh, and provide this. I think that we should work to make this an integral part of our fellowship training. And that's what we've done here at Johns Hopkins to make it really an expectation that our fellows are ready to sit for this exam. Uh, it's, it, it's, a, it's a huge tool in the toolbox that really should extend the differential diagnosis, the critical care thinking uh, criti- uh, that, that you're making on a daily basis. So I think it should be integrated. It's going to be difficult, I think, to to extend critical care fellowship further. Um, but I think that this is an opportunity to really, as our whole specialty uh, should do, evaluate how, how, more much, how much more value uh, critical care training can provide uh, to, to the future of our specialty. Um, so, yes, we've, we've integrated it into our year with that expectation that we're prepared for the future. But it also is, is requiring a significant more infrastructure to do that. So um, the amount of imaging tools that you need, the, the ultrasounds at the bedside need to uh, facilitate this. Unfortunately, uh, most machines really enable appropriate uh, imaging capacity. And then an image management system. Uh, that uh, our your fellows can really follow what images they've done, the quality of them, and get appropriate feedback so they can grow over the course of the year. And then really it, it takes the commitment of faculty to really provide the educational experience to get people up to the point of – of knowledge with with these these different topics, and I think you know w- what we'll probably try to do too now is is give you all just a bit of a flavor of some of the topics that that are further included in a critical care ultrasound exam. Yeah, I think that's great. Um, let me ask you just before we get to the specifics, um, what? So if I get a an echo, you know, if I order a, a, a formal echo, it does not include a lung ultrasound. But does critical care ultrasound include the lungs? Absolutely. So we've spent a lot of time talking about the heart, and this is what's also very exciting about critical care ultrasound. We do a tremendous amount of lung imaging. Um, Microcurvilinear probes are a really sort of new and advanced technology that give you resolution of the lung that we really haven't had before. Uh, So that provides you a lot of new information. But then also the abdominal ultrasound, DVT evaluation, airway evaluation, uh, and we also do optic nerve diameter to look at in uh, ICP monitoring. So there is, there's a lot more beyond um, just, just, the just the heart that we're learning in the critical care units and applying. And so does, that's great. Does that exam that we talked about include all of those things? It does. It okay. does. And th- now we won't do 
all of the other uh, all of the other systems, we sort of had have a flowing protocol of when is appropriate to do which. Um, and I also just want to emphasize here that our exam does not compl- it does not replace the cardiology exam too. We have an excellent relationship with our cardiologist, and part of our protocol is that if we have something structurally concerning, that we immediately trigger and work with our cardiology colleagues. Um, this is this is a means for us to to work together and collectively provide better care. Yeah, that sounds great. So. Let's talk about some specifics now, as you said before, not because the expectation is that people will be able to, uh, you know, listen to this podcast and then go sit for the exam. Uh, Obviously, that's going to take a lot of hands-on practice. And because we do audio only here, we're not going to be able to have images to look at in real time. But I still think there's some things that come up. People may see in a report, they may hear mentioned, or they may see on an exam, um, even just like anesthesia boards, uh, that might be useful to know. So one thing, since we were just talking about the lung, let me ask you this, beelines. People hear that all the time, it's discussed, and I bet a lot of people out there aren't really sure what that means. So when when someone says, oh, you know, I did a lung ultrasound and I saw a bunch of beelines, um, what are they talking about? So beelines are a type of artifact a, a comet artifact that essentially when you have uh, increased lung water volume, uh, the, it will increase the amount of comet artifact. Uh, and as you alluded to, there are difficulties with some of these findings because some are difficult to actually quantify. Uh, and uh, thus, when you're developing a critical care ultrasound practice, you really need to be able to store images, to follow sequential images, to make it as qualitative as you can. Um, but uh, but there's a robust literature behind utilizing um, uh, beelines for sure for increased lung water. And then to further guide your assessment at the bedside, is this someone who has ARDS developing, is it one-sided? Does one lung look worse than the other side? Uh, so is there an aspiration component to this? Is this CHF? CHF is not going to be one-sided. There, there, are, there are multiple clinical correlates of how this can really lead you to have utility at the bedside. Do beelines help you differentiate between pulmonary edema and pneumonia or no? Usually uh, it will mean pulmonary edema. Uh, and pneumonia, occasionally you can see consolidated lung. And we are seeing more with these uh, micro-curvilinear probes where we have um, better resolution at deeper depths. Great. All right. So moving to the cardiac realm, which is clearly uh, the, the most, I'd say, common thing that people will hear about. Um, when people hear about, uh, let me ask you first about the left side. So people about the left side of the heart, they may hear um, that the uh, EF, the ejection fraction, is, um, you know, is something. They hear a number. Um, is that an actual calculation, and how much, uh, you know, how much confidence do we have in an actual number, or is it more of a trend? What should people make when they hear, oh, you know, we did a uh, critical care ultrasound, and the EF, the LVEF was, you know, forty to forty-five percent, or thirty to thirty-five percent? Yeah. So this is an example of where we're going more quantitative with the critical care ultrasound uh, echo, and it, the number itself. Its normal values are 55 to 65 percent, and it really describes the amount of 
um, diastolic filling volume that was ejected during systole. It's a useful measure of systolic function, um, but uh, as you all will read in the article we provide to you, it is precarious and sometimes uh, difficult to accurately reproduce. So I think it's always a, a, a useful uh, first look at the ventricle because certainly if you see 10% versus 50%, that's going to lead you to a lot of other further questions. But I think the most important thing is you should always then ask further questions. What else is going on with the heart? And you shouldn't just uh, end there with hearing about what the ejection fraction is. Yeah, and I think, uh, and you tell me if I'm wrong, but one of the important things is just thinking about the definition. It is a fraction of what's in there that's, that, that is actually ejected. If you start with very little, uh, you may eject quite a lot, and that may not be an adequate amount. So just uh, knowing the percentage alone may not be all the information you need. That's correct. We're learning more about uh, one of my favorite topics, which is HEFPEP. So heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. And these patients have normal or supernormal ejection fractions, but uh, they're, they're susceptible to having heart failure symptomatology because of filling issues rather than emptying issues. Exactly. All right. How about stroke volume assessment? So uh, again, not how to do it, but one thing I think may well come up on an exam is the formula. So when you are using ultrasound to calculate stroke volume, I believe you are doing the LVOT area times the LVOT uh, volume time interval. Is that right? That's correct. So, uh, so this is a, a really useful measurement that we use in critical care echo for multiple different applications. And you're right. So the equation, we essentially look at the uh, area of the LVOT uh, and then multiply that by uh, the um, velocity time integral uh, or the volume time integral of uh, – and essentially – What's so powerful is by using ultrasound and making um, a couple of assumptions, which the assumption is that the LVOT is um, circular. It's probably more ovoid. Um, but, but nonetheless, we're probably pretty close to that. We can get a, a pretty accurate assessment of what the stroke volume, so the blood moving out of the aortic valve is. Um, others have seen this on uh, TEE as well, those that might be familiar with it. Um, but it is uh, it's really useful, and I'll just describe one uh, one correlate. So we just talked about ejection fraction, mm-hmm. right? So when people with end stage heart failure, say someone with ischemic cardiomyopathy with an EF of ten percent, how they will compensate over time that left ventricle is going to dilate, and so. By dilating, it's going to increase what the end diastolic volume is, and the ejection fraction might be limited to 10%, but with that 10%, they're able to generate enough volume that leaves the, leaves the aortic valve to have an appropriate amount of cardiac output to perfuse their organs, as opposed to someone who is at 55% and with the uh, description you made that the stroke volume actually going out to the body, even at an EF of 55%, maybe it's due to bleeding, maybe it's due to sepsis, who knows, is just not enough to perfuse the body. So this is how stroke volume can help us delineate um, the uh, adequacy of cardiac output. Yeah, it almost sounds like stroke volume might be a better thing to know than EF if you could only have one. Under certain circumstances, uh, I, I might pick it, yes. Great. All right. So uh, obviously, if you can have both, we'll take both, right? Absolutely. All right. What about um, 
the right side. So there's something that um, uh, is called TAPSE. You actually mentioned it earlier, T-A-P-S-E, TAPSE. Um, people, this is, uh, I think you see it in Echo reports. You see it all the time. And I bet a lot of people don't know what it means. So what does it mean? So in echocardiography, we use um, M-mode uh, echocardiography to look at essentially the distance that the tricuspid tricuspid annulus travels. So TAPSI stands for the tricuspid annular systolic plane excursion. So literally the the distance that the right ventricle annulus is traveling uh, in systole. And so usually greater than 1.6 is considered benchmark uh, normal limits. And below that suggests that there is RV dysfunction. So uh, what I'm picturing is the... um RV contracts during systole and that, I mean, this is a very crude way I'm sure to think about it, but essentially as it contracts, it's going to, it's going to squeeze down on the tricuspid valve. And then therefore a really strong contraction would, would push the valve down more, whereas a weaker contraction would push it down less. Does that, uh, in a very blunt way, does that make sense? I, I, yeah, it does. And essentially, um, it's important to know how we're measuring this um, because as you learn more with critical care echocardiography, you learn how, um, how there could be instances where um, you might have right ventricular dysfunction such as um, a, uh, an RCA or right-sided coronary ischemic event where you could have a normal TAPSI but an impaired lateral wall. For instance, so gotcha. so TAPSI it, it shows you a good bit of RV function, but it certainly isn't perfect. Um, uh, but but that's that's the in, intent of learning the the more detailed skills of critical care echo. Great. All right. So these are some examples of things that you're measuring in critical care ultrasound that you would not be measuring in just a basic POCUS exam um, and some of the utility for them. Um, let me ask you about IVC diameter. So this uh, is another thing that we might look at. Um, are you quantifying this more than uh, a basic exam in what you do a critical care ultrasound? And uh, if so, how? Definitely. So, so first of all, we look at the diameter of the IVC. It's going to show us more or less what right atrial pressures look like. Um, and um, if it's if it's dilated already, we have reason to believe that the venous pressures to the heart are elevated. Um, but furthermore, what we'll often do in critical care uh, echocardiography is look at respiratory variation as well, both in the intubated patient and the not intubated patient. So respiratory variation will tell us even more about the physiology of the right ventricle of the chest. Um, and uh, will uh, will allow us to discern other things as well. R- um, right ventricular dysfunction, the intensity of tricuspid regurgitation, the effect of mechanical ventilation, the presence potentially of tamponade physiology. Um, so the IVC it can be very useful for helping to work through these other critical care differentials, but certainly requires uh, a good bit of training and guidance to both acquire these images, know when the measurements should be taken, and then essentially how to interpret and apply them. It's always struck me that one of the significant aspects of 
people who are very good at ultrasound is that they they know how to manage the knobs. I think some people call that knobology. Do you, is that a significant? I mean, is there dedicated time to learning that in a, when you're learning critical care ultrasound? Absolutely, it's it's one of the first uh, it's one of the first um, modules that we do, um, and it's directly. Um, directly related to the physics of ultrasound. Um, so understanding the physics of ultrasound, which is uh, uh, an expectation in critical care echocardiography, um, and that's, I'd say that's a much higher expectation than in POCUS. Uh, it, and then using the knobs to to essentially optimize the physics to get the best images. And do you find that if somebody knows how to manage the knobs on, let's say, our the machines we have in our SICUs, you know, and then they go somewhere else where they have a, a different brand, a different ultrasound machine, is a lot of that pretty portable once they kind of figure out where the knobs are, or do they have to learn it all over? Uh, it's it's fairly portable, but it takes some time to to figure out uh, how do you set the harmonic setting, how do you turn it on and off, when is appropriate to do that, what's the focus look like, is there time gain compensation. Um, what frequency probes do I have to work with? Um, and what are the artificial intelligence functions of each machine? One of the really exciting updates that we had for our machines locally is that we have um, some automatic functions. Uh, so, for instance, learning how to use auto VTI uh, for our cardiac output assessments, which uh, – so I think – with the short answer is it's probably going to take a little bit of uh, learning on every new machine, uh, but I can tell you if, uh, new machines often challenge me in new ways, and you have to be sort of prepared for that because the technology is so rapidly changing. So that that in of itself is a good skill to have. Absolutely. So, Lee, I think that's super exciting. Lots of stuff coming, and, and what will be fun is as as we go on here and as our program that you're so expertly developing continues to develop and as there are new, new technologies and new stuff comes out, we can always come back and do updates and delve into some of this further. Yeah, I really look forward to that, Jed, uh, and um, many years of working together and uh, improving this space for our own trainees and uh, those, those great people we're able to recruit. No question about it. Anything else uh, on this topic you want to hit before we move to our random recommendation section? I think I think we've we've covered it. I hope that everyone has a better picture now of of what POCUS looks like for for general anesthesiologists and how that space is developing. But then also how there is this new new entity of critical care echo that's really special that's going to provide a lot of uh, value to patients and to our different um, different groups at universities and elsewhere. Fantastic. I think this was a great introduction to this, and uh, we'll post the things that you mentioned so folks have those to refer to as well. All right, let's move to the random recommendations. Lee, if you're thinking about what you would recommend to the audience when they want to turn their brains off from work and just do something fun or interesting, what's something you would recommend they check out? Well, it's about lunchtime, Jed, and so one of my favorite things, um, the fellows will, will tell you, I, I love to barbecue, and I, I have uh, a ceramic grill at home, and uh, I usually uh, dry brine chickens, uh, and then um, I do um, I do what's called beer can chicken. So I have a couple of apparatus to basically set up these chickens and 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 cook them slowly, but wait basically with a with a, a can of beer inside to make sure they're 
cooked all the way through but stay delicious. So, Wait, so you actually have a can of beer inside the chicken? That's right. Really? And so, t- so it's a can of beer that's unopened? It is opened. It's opened. Okay. Yeah, so it creates this column of beer steam. Wow. That cooks it from the inside out as well as from the outside in. And then dry brining is this amazing technique where you essentially create uh, a salted crust with the skin that further encapsulates all the moisture inside. So Wow. That sounds amazing. All right. Check out uh, Lee's dry brining and uh, beer can chicken option. Sounds fantastic. And I will say, also thinking about food, which is what I am almost always doing, that uh, I have been trying to get my kids to eat more vegetables. And so I, the other day, just went to kind of a market and got some organic vegetables and just threw this stir fry together. And it, it was very simple and was delicious. And my daughter couldn't stop eating it. Actually, two of my three daughters couldn't stop eating it, which which was just a lot of fun. And so I'll just very quickly say I got some uh, broccoli, kale, red peppers, um, tomatoes, and uh, onions, garlic, and ginger. And all I did was put some uh, oil in the pan, threw in the garlic and the ginger just a, for a couple seconds, and then uh, did the broccoli uh, and then once the broccoli started to get a little softer, I threw in the um, carrots, uh, onions, uh, red peppers. And then at the end of that, once that was all kind of softened up a little bit, just for the last few seconds, threw in the tomatoes and the um, and the kale. And uh, that was it. And I'll tell you, uh, salt, oh, salt, I should have said salt, pepper, um, and some uh, additional garlic granules. And I'll tell you, it was simple. It took about 15, 20 minutes. And uh, my kids loved it. And my wife and I loved it, too. So... That's uh, my recommended simple veggie stir-fry. You could obviously throw whatever veggies you want in there. But um, I think the key is the ginger really adds a nice little touch to it. And then uh, lots of garlic. The more garlic, the better. Uh, and it really came out well. All right. I'm excited that we have a listener random recommendation. It is from a listener who's a fourth-year medical student at Temple University. His name is Akshay Shankar. And he writes to recommend a book called In Shock. My Journey from Death to Recovery and the Power of Redemptive Hope. And the author is Rana Adwish. And he says that she is a pulmonary critical care ICU doc at Henry Ford. And evidently she had some uh, health issues and ended up in the ICU. And then she writes this incredibly moving uh, memoir about her experiences there and some of the things she learned being on the other side instead of being a doctor, being a patient in the ICU. Uh, And he says that it is, uh, and he knows it sounds a bit superlative, but he says, I can genuinely say this is one of the best books I've ever read regarding the medical profession and our current training paradigm. He says what he found most refreshing about the book was that Dr. Audish, having been on both sides of the situation, eloquently describes the aspects of our training process that teach physicians to act in these specific ways without blame or judgment. Rather, she uses the opportunity to describe how we can do a few extra things each day to show up better for our patients and our colleagues without being overly idealistic or naive. So certainly a big sell for this book. I have not heard of it or read it, but certainly have put it on my list after this great random recommendation from Akshay. Thank you so much. Remember to send in your random recommendations. You can send them via Twitter. You can send them via email. Any way you want, let us know, and uh, we'll include some of them on the show. That is it. Uh, Lee, thank you so much for coming back on the show. Great to be here. Thanks, Jed. All right. That was fantastic. I hope you got as much out of it as I did. This is a a tough topic, obviously, because 
we can't, uh, you know, show you how to do the exam, but I think just getting some introduction to this, and if it's something you want to pursue, look more into it. You can check out the resources that we'll post in the show notes. Let us know what you thought. Go to ACRAC.com where you can leave a comment. Everyone can learn from what you have to say. Also, you can join the conversation on Twitter. You can follow the podcast at ACRAC Podcast and follow me at, at @jwolpaw. And, of course, we also have a Facebook group now, so you can join the conversation there and the ACRAC Facebook group. There's also a lot of really great stuff we've got going on there. Thanks to our intern, Kimmy Akash Cooley. We've got question of the week. We've got some flashbacks to older episodes, all kinds of really cool stuff. So check that out. All right. If you are a fan of the show, please consider going to iTunes and leaving a comment and a rating. It really helps others find the show. You can also, if you're interested in supporting the making of the show, go to patreon.com slash ACRAC. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash A-C-C-R-A-C, where you can become a patron of the show. Even if it's just a dollar or two that you pledge, it makes a big difference, and we really appreciate it. And, of course, you can make a donation anytime by going to paypal.me slash ACRAC. Thank you so much to those who are already patrons and have already made donations. A huge thank you to the one and only Kimia Cash Cooley for her excellent work as the ACRAC intern. Big thank you to Brian Park for the outlines for the episodes. And, of course, our original ACRAC music is by the one and only Dr. Dennis Quo. Check out his website at studymusicproject.com. All right, that's it for today. For Dr. Lee Goodell and the ACRAC Podcast, I'm Jed Wolpaw. Remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued. 